0: You are listening to episode 12 of Dave's Daredevil podcast in which Matt begins a romance with the lethal Electra and ignores all common sense and there may be a new crime boss in town. another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am Dave, otherwise known from the internet as J. David Weeder. I am fighting a cold off, so if my voice is a little scratchy, I do apologize. But this time, we are continuing our first round of Frank Miller Daredevil material with the 1993 limited series Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. And we are at issue three, which is kind of an earmark issue. No, no, I said that right. Not landmark, but earmark. Because we will be coming back to this issue. See, the main brunt of this one is the college relationship between Electra and Matt. When we hit issue 168, the real-time first appearance of Electra, we touch once again on that time frame that we're seeing here. So I plan on comparing and contrasting this against the flashbacks in that issue to sort of gauge how much revisionist history Miller brought to the table with the limited series. So if you download episodes and discard them after listening, you might want to bookmark this episode or keep it around since it's going to be a bit important later on in our discussion. To put it in academic terms, yes, this will be on the test. See, what I haven't really bitten into, at least not too much, is the question of this story being canon. Is it officially part of the tapestry or a proto-Ultimate-style story to put Frank Miller's name on something? After all, it did come out in 1993, well after Born Again, even after Love and War and Elektra Lives Again. Miller had pretty much run the course, left the stadium, joined a whole new sport by the time he came back to Daredevil with this miniseries. Now, we mentioned that, yes, it was written as a treatment for a television movie in 1987 but he had reached acclaim with Dark Knight in year one, he had moved to Sin City, his creative juices were flowing in a different direction by the time he actually did the the script for the issues. So the story's original intention was not to be part of the comic book, and this may not be Miller trying to retcon the origin to include elements that he introduced in the run, but more Miller trying to have his cake and eat it too by creating an origin story influenced by his own work. Now the difference being in one scenario, the original material is serviced. In the other scenario, it's cannibalized. I know it's a weird distinction, but that will be made a bit clearer when we get to issue 168 several episodes down the road. All of that to say, earmark this issue, we will be coming back to it, which should make for a fine discussion. But the issue itself does allow us to see the resolution of last week's cliffhanger, which had Elektra entering Matt's life and messing with his head. To bring everybody back up to speed, she had picked up Matt, driven to the edge of a cliff, and leapt off, which brought back Matt's failure to save a prostitute while pursuing his father's killers. And that pretty much syncs us up, so after a podcast promo break, we will be looking at the third issue of Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. Be back right after this.
1: (laughs)
2: It's Megacom, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014, at the Orange County Convention Center in magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevik, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirm media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center of Magical Orlando, Florida March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. megaconvention.com. That's Megacon 2014, be there.
0: Welcome back from that break. This week's issue picks up moments after the last, which kind of seemed to be interrupted at an odd moment. Now, I failed to mention this or didn't make much mention of it, but I've shifted my reading from the Marvel Digital Unlimited to the trade paperback. I picked that up because some of the nice supplemental material, which I'll be commenting on, um, I made a few references to it, but failed to actually say I'm now reading from an actual print copy. The reason that's important is that it definitely changes some things in the experience. One, print has this nice little element that I call the smell of the book. Yes, I'm one of those people who love the smell of books. In fact, when I took the plastic off my Frank Miller omnibus, I buried my nose in the middle of it and took a big whiff. Then I looked at my wife and asked, you want to hit this? She didn't, but she's used to my book sniffing habit and the intervention is being planned as I record this. The second change is in the art. Splash pages and size are kind of lost on digital, They still look good, but print immerses me a bit more. It allows the story to sink in a bit more than it did in digital. In no way am I bashing digital. I love digital because it grants access to a lot of hard-to-get material, but I am saying that there are differences. That's all I am saying. And the third change is the back matter, the supplemental material that Marvel added to the trade. It has given some context to the behind-the-scenes goings-on, such as this stemming from the failed TV movie, as well as being able to see Frank Miller's original plot and the addendums. With the exception of the final three pages of this issue, all of the story came from one of the addendums. This won't weigh too much on looking at the issue individually, but it is going to be a big piece of my commentary for next episode and kind of when I get to the end of the series and do the overall thoughts and feelings. So I wanted to put that out there. For now, let's pick up and look at what Miller added to the overall story with Man Without Fear number 3, beginning with the cover, which is penciled by John Ramita Jr. and inked by Al Williamson. And on a white background, the phantom image of Daredevil looms as Elektra beats the living hell out of some random, rough-looking dudes at the bottom. Can I just say that I really dig the white? It's so simple, but in a time when every comic was stuffed full of darker colors, darker images... This one would have easily caught my attention. Now, Elektra is in a red outfit, which doesn't happen in the book itself, but it makes logical sense to sell the book. It's immediate recognition, though we are dealing with kind of proto-versions of our characters. It's a solid cover, and maybe one of the best of the five issues. But I hear you saying it. Dave, Dave, what happens in the comic itself, you ask? Well, let's jump in and find out what's in store in Man Without Fear Chapter 3, which is the story title. This issue was cover dated December 1993. And, of course, it's collected in the multiple editions of the Man Without Fear trade paperback, as well as the Frank Miller Omnibus Companion, and it's on Marvel Digital Unlimited in its entirety. Again, we have the writing team of Frank Miller, the penciling of John Romita Jr., inking of Al Williamson, letters by Joseph Rosen, and colors by Christy Scheel. Picking up quite literally where the last issue dropped off, Electra has leapt from a cliff, leaving a shocked Matt standing at the edge. Hearing water below, Matt realizes that Electra didn't go splat, and dives in after her, hitting the icy water and finding no trace of her. When the frigid, wet Matt returns to the water's surface, it is just in time to hear Electra's car speeding away in her loud, maniacal laughter. Matt makes his way back to his dorm room, where Foggy asks why Matt is soaked, and Matt tells him that he went swimming. Foggy fills Matt in that this Electra girl is bad news. Other guys who have gone out with her have ended up in traction. For the first time, Matt is armed with Electra Nachios' name and asks Foggy, Where does she live? And he heads out to teach Electra a lesson. Now it hit me as I began this issue that Miller continuously extending the script further and further was a bit redundant. The issue seemed to get more and more padded, leading to some awkward moments such as the first three and a half pages of this issue. Electra taking Matt to this bluff at the end of last issue and leaping was, in itself, a repeat of an earlier scene where she led him to the park. By eliminating portions of that issue, the opening scenes of this one, issue three, could have been folded into it, Ending it with Matt asking where Electra lives. I will say this Electra may be so nuts, planters could put her in a jar, but she does have some awesome ideas. She leaps into the water. She has figured out in a short period of time that Matt relies on the other senses to perceive the world. So when he goes into the water, he loses those. There's no sound, or at least very little sound, no smells, nothing to touch. She's testing his metal. In the real world, when a girl tests a guy's metal, it's normally seeing if they remember when they had their first date, or if he's going to pay for dinner, or open a door for her. Not many will trick a man into diving into icy cold waters, and most men would think twice about diving in. But Matt is haunted by the prostitute he kicked out the window by accident last issue, a failure of the highest caliber, As it was the moment that he lost control, and he will spend a lot of time getting his head wrapped around his own humanity and the capability for failure. And it doesn't go unnoticed that he is once again losing a bit of control with this hot-looking agent of chaos called Elektra. What is it that has Matt drawn to her at this point? Because it would seem like an easy question to answer, but it's more complex than a great body and a nice smile. Because Matt, A, can't see that, and up to this point, Matt doesn't even know her name. They have barely exchanged words. All that she has shown him is a nice dose of the crazies. But look at the first meeting. Both are minding their own business, leaping across rooftops, shaking things out a bit. Matt comes upon her, another person like him who exists in this world above the city. His curiosity is piqued a bit, so he followed her. And she decided to put him in a very awkward situation where he had to talk his way out. That one's a bit of a draw. Both are kind of guilty on that one. The next time he saw her, she pulled up in a convertible and he ditched Foggy to go for a ride with the woman who had just screwed him over a bit. And now this. Pretty much wrecking a car, leaping off a cliff. At that point, most of us would check out. a Done. Over. Walk away. I'm not paying for dinner. I'm out. Heck, some of us would be out for lesser reasons. But not Matt, because he's still hot on her trail. His control should tell him to walk away. His instincts should be in full check. Foggy's warning should tell him to walk away. But what does Matt do? He goes to her house. Bear in mind, she is the daughter of a diplomat, as in diplomatic immunity, works for the UN security. So Matt is going uninvited to his house where Electra lives, protected by the same security. Well, let's jump back in the story and see how that works out for him, shall we? Matt sneaks onto the sprawling estate of Electra's home and slips past the bodyguards into Electra's bedroom where he finds many trophies for excellence in athletics. But things get hairy when Matt encounters an attack dog, an armed bodyguard. Matt responds with a barrage of kicks and sends the bodyguard out of a window and through the top of a giant atrium where a well-attended upper-crust social gala is taking place. The guard lands right on the piano that Electra is playing, and she gets one quick glance at Matt before other armed guards open fire with automatic weapons. Remembering how badly he screwed up with the prostitute, Matt makes a run for it, but gets grazed by the bullets and makes a narrow escape. Willing himself to not black out from the bleeding, Matt barely makes it back to the dorm where he patches himself up. But there seems to be somebody in the shower of the dorm room, and it ain't foggy. We know this because Foggy returns to the room later and finds that he is locked out because Matt is, shall we say, indisposed. When the door is finally unlocked, Electra strides out and Foggy finds the room in shambles and Matt on the floor in his underwear. Matt simply tells Foggy that Electra is a very nice girl. Oh. You know, Matt is a stubborn, stubborn man. After the whole incident with the cliff and the icy water, Matt could have just popped some aspirin, taken a warm shower, and gone to bed to never think about Electra again. But no, instead of doing that, he commits a and A skilled one, but it's a B&E, it's a breaking and entering, because he slips past the guards and the alarms to actually make it into Electra's room. Of course, that is where things go sour. The room smells like Electra, and the captions tell us that Matt is running his hands over her belongings as if he were running them over her body. We are seeing his control slipping a bit. And the control that he was congratulating himself on a page before as he slipped through the guards and the fences and the alarm. And it actually occurred to me, what was he planning to do when he got here? The book never says what his original intent was. And of course, things go bad. Matt kicks a dog, which bothered me a bit. I don't like violence against animals. But it was snarling and attacking an intruder in the home, which is what it was trained to do. It was trained to protect the home. You know, the dog was doing its job. It occurs to me that Matt could have just left a note in Elektra's room. That would be sufficient to mess with her head. The mansion's full of guards and alarms. Why push it? Well, because Matt has some sex on the brain, and Electra keeps moving it away from him like Lucy moves the football for Charlie Brown. So basically, Matt's hopping around the Nachos house like he's Pepe Le Pew looking for his prey. Either way, we have the dog getting kicked for no apparent reason, and, and a guard gets kicked out of a window into an atrium that is three stories tall. Which means including the floor that they are actually on that is a four-story drop. Despite the theme of people getting knocked out of windows and Matt being haunted by them, there's no guilt here. This guard, who was a lawful employee of Nachos, who was doing his job just like the dog. You know, a job that produced a W-2. And Matt has illegally entered and is stalking around a foreign diplomat's house during a party with a high profile. Matt is in the wrong. Despite that, he feels nothing. So let me get this straight. A hooker accidentally gets knocked out of a window and Matt's torn up and haunted. A potentially decent, hardworking man who may have a family gets blatantly thrown out of the window. Matt has nothing in the emotional bucket. Remember, this is a four-story drop into a piano. I mean, Jingle Bell Rock should be playing and then Riggs and Murtaugh should show up to investigate. In fact, the moment that Matt does think of the fallen prostitute is after he pauses and is seen by the large crowd of people who noticed the guard, of course, falling through the atrium. How do you miss something like that? This is when Matt grows a heart when he's caught? Or after he sees Electra. You know, Electra, who keeps playing the piano without missing a beat. Which is a small gripe. I mean, we saw a man fall into the top of her grand piano, smashing the top of the cabinet. Yes, most of the cabinet remained intact, but surely some wood, not to mention the guard, would have gotten into the cabinet, affecting the strings. But Electra keeps playing it, as if nothing happened. That grand piano has to sound like a child's toy just plinking away at the strings. Pink, 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 pink. And you know, the crowd is probably humoring her. Great music, Elektra, and I love your Baroness glasses. But we don't stick around that scene long enough to see the CSI team show up and get the fingerprints off the trophies and run it through the database. Not that Matt's fingerprints would be on file, since he wouldn't be in the criminal database, but also don't get any assurance that the guard was alive. Instead, we follow a bleeding Matt back to the dorm as he is doing his best not to pass out. I get him not noticing the shower and Electra inside it because when you lose that much blood, staying upright is, a, is a pretty much a job in itself. You're trying to stay, keep yourself out of shock. However, here is where I call crap. Matt and Electra have a violent sex fest, judging by the condition of the dorm room. I mean, things are overturned, broken blinds are torn down. And it's not that I think that kind of escapade is impossible, but, and I'm going to tread carefully with my words here, For a key component to that act to function, it requires a certain level of blood pressure. Matt has spent the last hour or more struggling to stay upright, so I would assume that would continue, if you catch my drift. But I'm not medically trained, and I know that when it comes to the beast with two backs, sometimes it can be mind over matter, but that moment stood out for me. Also, poor Foggy. Poor, poor Foggy, always playing wingman, even from the early days. Couldn't Matt have thrown like a sock on the door? But no, we get that awkward uh, moment where Foggy tries to enter. And then the scene ends with Matt saying that Electra is a very nice girl. I would like to see some evidence of that, Matt. But let's see how much of a nice girl she is. After her rendezvous with Matt, Electra feels restless and walks the streets of Times Square and ends up in its dark back alleys. This attracts a gang of muggers and Electra hears the voices in her head compelling her, so she slips out of her fur coat into a set of black tights. And as the voices in her head command, Electra lets the men start the attack and then shreds them mercilessly. Bones break. Blood is spilled, and in the end, Electra leaves happy. When the police find the pile of bodies later, she has painted I Love New York in blood on an alleyway wall. As time passes, Electra and Matt become closer romantically and are very happy, which Electra knows won't last. Late one night, Matt awakens to find Stick on his bed, warning him to stay away from Electra. She's bad news, and Stick won't have Matt joining the enemy. Stick gives Matt a jab to the throat, making him pass out, and when Matt wakes up, he assumes it was all a dream, and shrugs it off. Now this particular segment begins with a shot of Times Square, which is just gorgeous, and I will give some credit to Christy Scheel on that, since neon is a big part of it, and color is a big part of neon. Miller, in an interview, put an idea into my head about the way New York is depicted in Daredevil stories. Street level is claustrophobic. It uses a lot of rectangles, while the rooftops and flagpoles look open and free. This allows Daredevil to be in his own world and be capable of rising above our normal ground level, creating that dividing line from us, the little folks and the superhero. Ramita seems to have that same aesthetic here, because we are looking down at Times Square, which is a mass of neon lights and a clump of colors. Then we dive into that claustrophobic world to follow Electra's post-coital routine, you know, baiting thugs into trying to mug her and then beating them mercilessly and killing them, one and all. That old chestnut. You know, after a night of passionate lovemaking, I just gots to listen to the voices in my head and murder some bad guys. Actually, the voices in my head tell me to watch Matlock, and I never listen to those voices. Never. Despite the kind, southern wisdom of Andy Griffith. But Electra seems to have some very odd habits, and everybody but Matt seems to see the writing on the wall. Well, almost literally. I mean, she writes, I heart New York on the wall of the alley in blood. Now let me see, when was the last time we saw something like that as readers? Oh, yeah, Bullseye. I know this story predates that in the chronology of the storytelling of the mythology, but... You know, like minds, And unintentionally, it ties these two characters together in terms of their modus operandi. Different motivations, you say? No? No? Both enjoy and romanticize killing and seek it out, both get a rush from it, and satisfy a bit of desire rooted deep in their bones. Yes, the blood on the wall, judging by the text in the outline, was for illustrative purposes in the story's own context, but it works in a weird way for two characters who haven't met yet, but have futures intertwined with each other. And Matt, the one who has so been out of shape on keeping control, so no further hookers need fear the man without fear, he completely misses what is right in front of him. He's all twitterpated, and he doesn't realize that he is in this slow broil of losing control. He's a frog on a hot plate, and even Stick shows up to warn Matt. Sure, Matt shrugs it off as a dream, but wouldn't that at least indicate that his subconscious is telling him to back off? Matt, for all of his intelligence and his gifts of perception, is completely ignoring every sign that Elektra is going to wreck his world. Well, she has wrecked it. She's continuously made him lose control and continues to overtake his thoughts. Every discipline that Matt has is being thrown out the window, even his promise to Jack, as his studies appear to slip a bit. Well, that can't end well, can it? Let's look at the last leg of this issue to see how things get really, really bad. Matt ignores Stick's advice and falls in love with Elektra, and while on a skiing trip with her, he also completely shrugs off Elektra's confession of killing several people. But when Electra's father is killed, which we'll see more on later down the road, she tells him that she must leave because she can't take Matt to hell with her. And instead of, you know, putting the pieces together, Matt feels like Electra's leaving is a punishment for his failure with the prostitute. And then the issue wraps up with a scene of the many crime families of the underworld having a summit led by an eye-patched overboss. And when the family heads leave, the Overboss, who was fighting off, kind of escalating the operations to, well, child trafficking and designer drugs, but he speaks to somebody off-panel telling his council that he's the only one that he trusts. And then the council puts two meaty paws on the side of the Overboss's head and swiftly snaps his neck to assume his role. Taking a rose from the dead man's suit jacket and tucking it into his own coat lapel, Wilson Fisk assumes the role of Kingpin. There are two standout make-you-go-hmm moments in this last segment of the issue. First off, Electra does her best to confess to Matt all of the violent things that she has been doing, and he shrugs it off. This is particularly poignant because Electra is actually reaching out for help and trying to look to Matt to curb this darkness, and she sees Matt as a possible savior, you know, somebody who has a real chance to raise her from the dark pit of emotion she's fallen into. She doesn't reach out to her father, whom she has a close relationship with. It's Matt, who she sees as the one to save her. Matt not believing her is one thing. It's not as douchey as it appears. His intentions are generally good, and he could have saved her from her past if he hadn't been so twitterpated. But the unknown variable is the death of Electra's father. Neither could have known that this was about to happen, or that their time together would be so very short. And I wonder when Matt thinks that he is being punished, if he realizes that he wasn't using his faculties to their fullest potential. At this point, as illustrated in Issue 2, Matt can listen to the heartbeats of others. He has his lie detector in place to some extent, and if Matt wasn't so wrapped up in Electra's pretty eyes and hair, he could have caught that she wasn't lying. As the first proper Electra appearance in the book itself was going to tell us, Matt never realized that she was telling the truth at that time. It never dawned on him. Without treading too far into this, since we will be circling back to it, we are seeing how things played out, not how Matt saw them play out. Earmark that thought for a later date. The second scene, and this is the point where the story rejoins its original trajectory before the addendums, is the rise of the Kingpin when he kills his boss, Rigoletto. The rise of the Kingpin wasn't fully chronicled in the original stories. Spider-Man fought Wilson Fisk's predecessor, the Big Man, and put him in jail. The big man, whose name was Frederick Foswell, returned and actually went legit, working as a reporter for the Daily Bugle, and that was when we met the kingpin. And Fisk was, well, kind of laughable. He had a cane with a disintegration ray and hit people with his belly. But Fisk actually has some cool features. Yes, he's big, which many people see as fat. Do not be fooled by this. That is muscle. Muscle. Wilson Fisk is practically a wall of muscle. He's tall, he's almost round, but I don't think he has a bit of body fat on him. Bear in mind, he actually beat Spider-Man down. He's faster and a lot stronger than he looks, which is a huge understatement. As we see here in the issue, he is working as Rigoletto's bodyguard and decides to make a long gestating power play. He's not only strong and capable of bringing some pain, he's smart and relentless and patient. Up to this point, Rigoletto thinks that Fisk is mute. Fisk has been silent for so long just watching and waiting for like some demonic predator. And Rigoletto has no clue that this empire is being built around him atop his corpse before he is even dead. Rigoletto trusts Fisk to guard his life. And Fisk has been waiting for just the right moment to snap his freaking neck. That is pure evil. Sure, it is odd that Miller took Kingpin from Spider-Man and made him a Daredevil villain. But man, what a matchup and a fitting villain too. Remember when I said that arch-villains should be opposite and to the left? Let me apply that to the Kingpin. Matt uses his impairment to gain his super senses. To see him is to judge him by his sightlessness in some ways. Kingpin looks to be massively overweight, but that size is one of his weapons. What appears to be weakness is a strength. They are such a well-matched set of villains as Matt pursues the law, and Fisk is good at using it as a shield. And yes, seeing the ascension of Kingpin is a retcon. But it is an expertly placed retcon nestled in a small cavern of space that existed in the original timeline. So now we have seen Matt get justice for Jack Murdoch, find and lose Elektra and his control just as his greatest threat emerges? We are over the halfway mark in this miniseries, viewed as a single cohesive story has me on board. It's given me a lot of pause and material to chew on. Now we get to see Matt Murdoch battle the Kingpin for the first time, but that is for next week. I mentioned this at the top of the show, but if you want to take a peek at this, there is a new printing of the trade paperback available as well as the hardcover editions and the Frank Miller and Klaus Johnson Omnibus Companion. I say that to say this. Never forget that these issues can be found in back issue bins at a relatively reasonable price. I priced it out for you, you're welcome, and MyComicShop.com has the whole series, and with shipping you can own it for about $10.35, maybe slightly higher depending on the grade of the book. That's a good buy. That's actually less than the trade paperback, but you don't get the same supplemental material. But for now, we're going to put the story on the shelf as we'll be coming back to it next week. And I turn the floor over to you and your emails. Time for email for Dave's Daredevil podcast. All right. First up on the email docket this week is an email from Mr. Luke Giaconetti with the subject line, Bullseye, A Night in the Life, and The Saga of Battling Jack. Luke writes, Dave. I just got caught up on Episodes 8, 9, and 10 of the show and wanted to write in about these three very different Daredevil stories. Episode number 8 introduced Bullseye, which I really appreciated as I had never heard the story of Bullseye's first appearance before. The concept of Bullseye as an anti-complex character is an intriguing one. Simplicity is the key with bad guys, I think, but as comics progressed from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age and beyond, it's natural to want to apply the same increased complexity, which the heroes demonstrated, to the villains as well. In some cases, this is a very welcome development, but sometimes there are just people who will do bad things because they want to. They have some sinister urge to commit crimes or hurt others for no real reason, and Bullseye fits this mold. I hate to invoke such a polarizing character, but the poster child for this sort of simplistic evil is Carnage over in the Spider-Man books. His classic statement of motivation was, after all, I'm killing you, cause I can. Bullseye has a lot more going for him than Carnage, but this seeming love of violence puts him squarely in the same category. Episode 9 worked out for a nice piece of serendipity. A randomly chosen issue turns out to be a nice done-in-one story. What are the chances? I liked this examination of how there really is no typical night for a superhero. Strange things go down and there's no way to predict what nut is going to crack on any given day. Mark Wade played on this a little bit very early in the current ongoing. There's a bit where Matt always messengers a fresh set of clothing over to where he is meeting a client because, inevitably, there's some reason for him to switch to Daredevil during the trip. Finally, in episode 10, I really dug hearing about the first issue of Man Without Fear. I distinctly remember this miniseries being hyped in the pages of both Wizard Magazine, as you mentioned, as well as Comic Shop News, which younger readers may not recall actually had their own writing staff and was not just a print version of Newsarama. I passed on it at the time, but I do remember thinking that the JR Jr. art looked really different than anything I was reading at the time. As a 90s guy, I was honed on the McFarlans and Larsons of this world. And while I really, really loved Jim Valentino's less ostentatious and more realistic work over on Shadowhawk, I'd never seen anything approaching J.R.J.R.'s powerful style. I ended up passing on it because I didn't follow Daredevil, but this has been on my lookout for list for many years. Still no luck on that front, but very much looking forward to hearing your continued coverage of it. This issue with the fall of Battle and Jack Murdoch seems like a fantastically hard-boiled tale, very much in what I stereotypically ascribe as a Daredevil story. So certainly not swashbuckling, but thought-provoking nonetheless. On a side note, please count me as one reader who would love a Daredevil Hot Stuff team-up. You could also do a team-up of Iron Man and Richie Rich, two guys with more money than they know what to do with who end up getting into all sorts of shenanigans. Plus, Jarvis and Cadbury, butlers to the stars, Irona the Robot Maid could be put to good use as well. Thanks, and keep up the great work on the show, Luke. It's been a long time since I thought about Comic Shop News. I used to love Comic Shop News, or as I called it, this is free, right? For those of you that don't remember, Comic Shop News was, I believe it was weekly, but it was basically, it was put on newsprint and folded like an actual newspaper and kind of predated Wizard, and basically told you what was coming out, and actually had some very good level-headed approach to what was coming out. It wasn't quite the full-on hype machine that Wizard would become. And Luke, let me say that Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk for a long time has been one of my guilty pleasures. I was one of those guys buying the book that was during a time when it was coming out and not everybody was on board with it. And that was a book that progressively got better with each iteration. But I'm finding more and more now people are admitting they love Shadowhawk. It's got a nice place in their hearts. I also liked the idea that Matt would send the fresh set of clothes and then, and then Wade ran. I didn't quite get it at first. I had to take a reread and like, oh, okay, I see what's happening. He just can't catch a break. You go out of the house to run a quick errand and suddenly Stiltman shows up or Leapfrog. What a weird life to have for a superhero. As I mentioned, though, Luke, you can get this for fairly cheap at mycomicshop.com or the trade itself has a new printing that retails for about 19.99. Check in-stock trades. Because I'm sure it can be had for much cheaper. And the and the back issues, you know, they're still reasonably priced. And the, the supplemental material, though, in the trade is actually really, really good. And you know, Luke, we need to get Marvel and Harvey comics on the phone stat. If they can make a Richie Rich movie with Macaulay Culkin, this can happen. Imagine Tony teaching Richie Rich how to make it rain. But I'd love the idea of Jarvis and Cadbury hanging out. Wonderful ideas, Luke. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with a, a simple villain. I do like, you know, I like to see... Progression in villains. Magneto's a good example, which can sh- also show you how things can go wrong, but sometimes you just, as Carnage said, kill someone because you can. But thank you for your email, Luke. Next up is from Jason Sandberg. The subject line is Episode 10, The Frank Miller Era Begins. And Jason writes Dave, I'm an enthusiastic fan of Mark wade's current run on Daredevil. I can't recommend it enough. But my first issue of Old Hornhead was number 166 in 1980. I was nine years old and purchased it as my family was driving out of town on a road trip. I knew something was different about the title, something dangerous. I was hooked, so Frank Miller's Daredevil is my Daredevil. I applaud your decision to begin the 2014 Frank Miller coverage with The Man Without Fear number one. The tempo and personality of your show continues to be great. I'm looking forward to reliving the Electra, Bullseye, Kingpin, Ninja, Turk, Stiltman rollercoaster right ahead of us, Jason Zandberg. And I thank you for mentioning that, Jason. I was leery about using this order, as it would either make things flow in a neat, mood-setting manner, or completely wreck it. So far, I feel like it was a good decision, because I can always call back to Man Without Fear a bit easier than putting it based on publication, which would mess with the references in in the miniseries itself. And we are getting closer to the run proper, which I have reread in its entirety via my omnibus. It's a quicker read than you would expect. And as I mentioned on Twitter, my love for Turk has been revived. I also suggested on Twitter that we have a drinking game. Every time the window in Josie's bar gets busted, take a shot. Now, I'm not advocating shooting alcohol at that level, but maybe a shot of Orange Crush would be in order, because Orange Crush is the best drink on the market ever. Anyway, 166, that's an odd issue to start with, because the first thing that occurred to me was, at the end of that issue, it, character, it teases a character crossover that doesn't deliver on in issue 167, which, of course, we're going to be covering, so it's a bit of a teaser... But I can see where the art style and the tone of the book would draw you in. And I would definitely use the term roller coaster for what is ahead of us right after Man Without Fear. So definitely glad to hear you're enjoying the show, Jason. The final email of the week is from Brad Dade. The subject line is new to show. And Brad writes, Hi Dave, I recently discovered your show through a promo on Michael Bailey's views from the Longbox podcast. I'm currently playing catch up on all your episodes so far. Daredevil is my favorite Marvel hero. Although that might not be saying much as I haven't overall always been the biggest marvel fan, I come and go and back again in following Daredevil. For me, my first Daredevil comic I bought was issue 220. No particular reason except it had a really cool cover of DD Dee Dee in the fog and it was in a 10 cent bin. That issue was during the run by Denny O'Neill and David Massicelli that would lead into Frank Miller's Born Again saga. As a result, it is often a forgotten part of DD's Dee history. It was a run I personally really enjoyed. Some of the issues were reprinted in the Loves Labor's Lost Trade put out a few years ago. Just curious of your familiarity with this run and what your opinion is of it. I listen to a lot of comic podcasts, probably too many, and what I enjoy about your podcast, along with some of the others, is that it is more about the history of comics, both through the books and through your own personal history in relation to the characters. I have enough podcasts that keep me up to date about current comics. Shows like yours remind me about my personal love and enjoyment of these funny books. As an aside, the format of your show feels very similar to a podcast called Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. Traces the history of a character while peppering in personal antidotes of the host's personal history. Give it a try. Look forward to each episode. Thanks for taking the time to do them. Cheers, Brad. Well, gotta get that royalty check out to Michael Bailey as soon as I get more stamps. Now, when beginning my retro pull list, which I don't know if I've explained here, but basically I am going through... Basically I'm trying to rebuild my, my back issues and read them, and I would put that all in one fell swoop with a retro pull list where I'll just take cover months and read them chronologically, and that's how I'm building my back issues. Because, kind of what Shag mentioned over in Fire and Water Podcast, I'm looking for my macaroni and cheese, my comfort food, my joy in comics again, and that happens to go back. Anyway, so going cover month by cover month, I actually had the Denny O'Neill Mazzuchelli issues in my stack right before the cover months kicked in. They were just some extra here and there. Now... I think that run is very underrated, but weird and kind of lopsided. For example, I never fully got behind the weird psychic connection between Daredevil and Bullseye, but I loved Daredevil going to Japan and facing down Samurai. Especially one great scene that always stands out where the Samurai are advancing and Daredevil is swinging his billy club, and then we cut to Dee, Dee walking away with a bunch of Samurai on the ground. And while that's underrated, we have things like, you know, the Savage Sin. You know, he's a savage. And then Foggy's wife gets a taste of his manliness, which is awkward. And there's a really weird Christmas party in there. But I do appreciate one thing. I've listened to Tom Pandarese's Taking Flight. I love that show and his show In Country, which covers the Marvel's NOM series. As much as I feel Robin was written as an appendage to Batman for a long time, many writers have fleshed out Dick Grayson and made him a viable character of his own. And Tom does a very excellent job of bringing that out in the way he covers the books. So, for you to compare to that show is an honor, and Tim Drake is always going to be my favorite Robin, for the record. But, one thing that stood out is, I'm always glad to hear that Daredevil is the favorite Marvel hero of people, and to hear it regularly does the heart good. It means I'm in the right place. Another thing is, for the last two weeks, I've seen downloads for the show double, which, probably, thanks should go to shag as well as Christine from the other Murdoch papers. But it also means the show is finding its audience with Daredevil fans, which means more of us are coming together. And many of us have stories like Brad where we picked up an issue of Daredevil by happenstance and saw how awesome the Man Without Fear is. So please, more emails on how you discovered Daredevil, because I actually really enjoy those, and I never get tired of being in good company on finding the character. And if you want to email, you can do so at dave at daredevilpodcast.com. Also, we don't have any iTunes reviews this week, if you don't mind stopping by iTunes, searching out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, and giving a, preferably a five-star review, but, you know, be honest. That would be very much appreciated. It helps the show get noticed. And that brings another episode of DDP to an end. Next time, hopefully my cold is gone, so I can speak a little bit clearer. Hopefully I wasn't too muddy, or at least I could fix it in editing but next time the kingpin is now in the equation and that can't mean good things for our man without fear as we look at the penultimate issue of the limited series until then remember justice may be blind but it can see in the, the dark they call a man without fear
1: never far away whenever danger's near there's never, never, fight, never, fight, never fight, fight, fight for what is right
0: Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes, where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats, and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.